And we had to explain that, look, we're actually building something much bigger and planned, trying to solve not just one piece of the pharmaceutical drug discovery puzzle, but go and uh, try to solve it all. Welcome to the AWS Health Innovation Podcast, where you can learn from entrepreneurs and investors who are driving progress in healthcare and life science around the globe. Welcome back, and thanks for joining us. I'm Alex Merwin, Head of Growth Healthcare and Life Science Startups at AWS. Today, we'll learn more about how generative AI and other technologies are rapidly accelerating the drug discovery process by hearing from Insilico Medicine, who's using AI to create an entirely reimagined drug discovery pipeline from A to Z. Let's go. Hello, and welcome to the AWS Health Innovation Podcast. I'm excited to guest host the session today. My name is Yin He, and I lead our work with early-stage healthcare and life sciences startups and investors at AWS. I'm trained as a wet lab scientist with a PhD in molecular biology and genomics. Prior to AWS, I was an early employee and operator at a venture-backed startup building cloud labs and software tools to help pharma and biotechs accelerate drug discovery. I'm deeply passionate in thinking about how we can leverage technology to solve problems in drug discovery and improve health outcomes. For this reason, I'm absolutely thrilled to be joined today by Alex Jabaronkov, founder and CEO of Insilico Medicine. Alex, welcome. Let's dig in, and I'm looking forward to sharing more about your startup and founder journey. Thanks for having me. It's a great pleasure to be on AWS podcast. All right, Alex, to kick things off, can you tell us a little bit about Insilico, what you all do? Sure. So Insilico is a generative artificial intelligence company, uh, even though it uh, sounds pretty populist nowadays, but we've been doing generative artificial intelligence uh, since 2016, utilizing GANs, uh, transformers, and other forms of generative to either generate synthetic biological data with the desired uh, properties, and one of those properties is age. So creating entire populations of uh, virtual patients. And we also utilize generative AI to generate novel molecules with the desired properties. So instead of um, uh, looking for a needle in the haystack, we generate a bunch of novel needles and uh, with the desired properties and then process them and see which ones uh, are more applicable to a specific um, application, specific disease. And we also do predict the outcomes of clinical trials using AI by extrapolating many trials into the future with the original template uh, as a base. We can do that from uh, the very beginning, from uh, early stage drug discovery all the way into phase two complete. So we predict uh, phase two to phase three probability of success. And most importantly, we've uh, released many, many software tools now on the market and uh, hundreds of key opinion leaders in both biology and chemistry, are utilizing our toolkit. So we are a software company. Uh, and uh, in 2019, we decided to evolve into an AI-powered biotech. So we decided to use our own software to generate small molecules for a variety of uh, protein targets that we identify and prioritize using our biology software and take it all the way into human clinical trials ourselves just to prove the point, because we realized that the big pharmaceutical companies, they need to grow, uh, they need an example, they need to see that the software they are using and that you are providing can actually result in a clinically successful product. 
So we decided to demo this several times. And then we realized that we are so good at that now that we started doing it at scale. So just to put you in perspective, last year, 2022, we nominated nine preclinical candidates. Um, just to put you in perspective, usually big pharmaceutical companies using internal R&D in small molecules, they nominate four to five, right? So that's double of what big pharma usually produces. And three of those AI-imagined molecules went into human clinical trials. And now one just completed phase one human clinical trial and going into phase two, which is pretty incredible. I think that's the industry first. I'm also personally pretty much religiously focused on uh, longevity. So anything that is uh, related to aging. My background is in computer science. I um, switched into biotech uh, around um, uh, probably around 19 years ago now and uh, did my grad work uh, in bioinformatics, uh, biophysics, and then started in Silicon 2014. But my background is in GPU computing originally. And that allowed me to go from the algorithm to uh, human clinical trials, but I never expected to be in this position. We also raised just over $400 million. We're truly global. And, uh, you know, I challenge you, I dare you to ask ChatGPT three and a half or four, what are the top three AI drug discovery companies in the world? And I would really love to you know, to share the <laughs> output because it's pretty, pretty interesting. And then ask it which one out of those three is a leader in generative artificial intelligence and why. So um, when you get the response, uh, when I get the response, at least, I usually like it. I can take a guess then which one it is. <laughs> uh, yes. Well, great. Yeah. And you touched on so many things, but there are a couple of threads you definitely want to double click on and dive a little bit deeper. The first is let's continue the Gen AI thread, right? Because how can you go for a day without hearing about Gen AI? So you've shared how Insilico has leveraged generative AI technology since 2016. Can you talk about a specific application or example of how you're using Gen AI and looking ahead? What are some regulatory and ethical considerations around IP that we should be anticipating? Sure. So I actually will tell you a fun story. So I'll also tell you how Insilico got started. And uh, in 2013, one of my colleagues from ATI Technologies, we both worked at ATI, Sil Eisler, uh, he called me up and said that, look, Alex, you know what? You are doing this uh, biotech thing, right? And you are going around uh, talking about AI algorithms. Why don't you come and present at NVIDIA? And uh, NVIDIA has this wonderful conference called GTC, mm -hmm. uh, which uh, brings together all of the uh, GPU computing specialists or anybody who is using NVIDIA platform. And while I was at ATI, of course, NVIDIA was a competitor, but a hugely respected one. And uh, Jason Huang is my personal role model, and I think he is the role model for everyone in this industry, because I uh, you know he's probably the best CEO ever living. Uh, unlike Elon, he actually concentrates on one company and also is extremely kind and presents at the level that is probably exceeds Elon's capabilities and manages to find the right uh, technological trends and bet on them with his company, not starting new ones. And I took this opportunity, you know, wanted to see Johnson. And I realized that, you know, in 2013, deep learning started outperforming classical methods, right? Classical machine learning uh, methodologies. 
And uh, I realized, okay, well, it's time, right? So it's time to start something yourself. So I went to a media GC, presented, competed in the Emerging Technology Challenge. Uh, they have uh, a startup competition. And also saw Ian Goodfellow present. I saw Andre Karpathy present, but Andre present, presented uh, kind of convolutional deep neural nets. And everybody was talking about GANs, Generative Adversarial Networks, published by Ian Goodfellow and Joshua Benjo at that time out of University of Montreal. And then Ian moved to Google and then to OpenAI. And uh, I decided to bet everything on deep learning, right? Mm -hmm. So basically, in Silicon, started focusing on deep learning, even in areas where everybody was criticizing deep learning. They're saying they shouldn't do this because other traditional statistical approaches outperform. And we had to explain that, look, we're actually building something much bigger end-to-end, -end, trying to solve not just one piece of the pharmaceutical drug discovery puzzle, but go and uh, try to solve it all, right? And for that, we probably need to build the pharma brain, as we call it. So some models will have to be predictive, some models will have to be generative, some models will have to be based on uh, convolutional deep neural nets, some uh, models will have to be fit forwards, and we need to try to go with new technology after classical tasks, right? And at that time, I didn't even understand the complexity of pharmaceutical drug discovery. So very often, even pharmaceutical drug discovery veterans, they don't know the entire process because they specialize in something very, very narrow. So medicinal chemists uh, sometimes do not understand clinical development or clinicians that are doing clinical development, they don't understand biology and chemistry. Uh, biologists don't understand chemistry. So we wanted to build this pharma brain. So in 2015, we saw that GANs started producing miracles, right? And uh, decided to, for the first time, to go with this technology after a small molecule drug design. So originally, we were very good at uh, solving biological problems with deep learning. So we basically train a deep neural network, for example, to predict a person's age using biological data, and you could identify valuable insights, understand what are the key drivers, learn the fundamental human biology, and then retrain on diseases to identify protein targets that are important in both disease and aging. Published a bunch of research papers on that. But then we thought, okay, why don't we go chemistry? And uh, generative is perfect application for generation of novel chemical structures, because Data availability in chemistry is actually pretty, uh, um, is, is there, right? So you can train on uh, hundreds of millions or even billions of structures with different representations. You can do fingerprints, molecular fingerprints, binary representations. You can do text. You can do graphs, wave transforms, point clouds. So there are many, many ways to represent the molecule. And there is a huge, vast corpus of knowledge about chemistry with annotation. So we thought, okay, can we use an adversarial autoencoder to generate molecules with the desired properties that are also drug-like? Mm -hmm. And I partnered with a very talented AI scientist who joined us uh, during an AI um, deep learning hackathon competition that we ran. And uh, he uh, became the first author on this paper. Artur Kadurin, very wonderful scientist. And uh, he did the work where uh, he, we used um, molecular fingerprints to generate molecules with the desired properties that may have anti-cancer properties. 
and that are also reasonably novel. And we try to match the generated molecules with the existing ones and see if we can do well. And we did, published. That was 2016, November, December. We submitted the paper in 2016 in June. And actually, in the meantime, another group at Harvard put their paper on archive using a variational autoencoder. So not a true GAN, but still generative, showing that they can generate also novel molecules with the desired properties using SMILES, text representation of the molecular structure. And now that paper is actually higher cited, well, because it's Harvard and also um, it's a very good paper, but I think ours was first. But then, and that was Alana Spurogudzik's lab out of Harvard. She later moved to the University of Toronto and became the head of the Vector Institute very prominent AI research center, predominantly focusing on life sciences and material sciences. And um, uh, she uh, later proceeded with, you know, many, many, many innovative papers in this field and us as well. So we were competing and then we actually partnered. She became one of our advisors and wonderful collaborators. So we started publishing many papers together. And 2017, 2018, our group published uh, many, many theoretical papers using Reinforced adversarial autoencoders for small molecule drug design. We used the central threshold neural computers, entangled adversarial autoencoders. So many, many, many different models. And then in 2017, we decided that, okay, we're running out of cash. And, uh, you know, one of the pharmaceutical companies we were collaborating with went through quote unquote a strategic direction change because, uh, it acquired the new chief scientific officer and at that time, we were quite dependent on the company, but we still decided to, okay, now we need to focus on chemistry and we need to demonstrate that we can go beyond theory and into experimental domain. So we sent our AI-generated molecules out of the entangled conditional autoencoder selective Jack Yanoskinase 3 inhibitors. It's a very famous uh, protein target, lots of information available about it, but it's very difficult to make a selective inhibitor. So we generated a bunch, sent it to a contract research organization in China called uh, Wuxi Aptec. It's a global biotechnology contract research organization. It's a platform that supports many, many, so pretty much every pharmaceutical company. It's kind of like Apple. You can design anywhere in the world, but then synthesize and test in, in Wuxi. So it's a contract research platform, which is phenomenal, best in the world. So we sent it to them and... Uh, they tested and realized, oh, it, it worked, right? Those weird molecules worked. As a matter of fact, it, uh, I have to tell you the complete story, so it didn't work the first time. Um, so well, thanks for being like, honest. <laughs> yeah, you know, this, uh, rockets also failed or learn, and we decided, okay, let's do it again. So we sent it one more time. This guy's even said, okay, well, do you need medicinal chemistry help? Those molecules look weird. So we synthesized, tested, they worked. Wushi invited us to present, and then they supported us uh, financially, helped us uh, synthesize, and then we managed to raise our first Series A in early 2018 with Pavilion Capital out of Singapore, with Bold Capital, that's Peter Diamandis's fund, which is investing in exponential technologies, super successful venture capital company, and extremely well-connected, so they support startups at a completely new level. And then we were in good hands. And then we partnered with Wuchi, and in 2018, we used their uh, scientists to come up with a race to try to see how quickly we can generate and test the molecules and all the way to publication. 
uh, and all the way into mice. So because, you know, the molecule has to have many, many, many properties. It has to bind the target very strongly. It has to be novel, so you can commercially prosecute it. It has to be selective. It has to go into a specific tissue. It should not be metabolized by your body. Your body knows how to metabolize molecules really, really well. That's why we can eat stuff that uh, is sometimes toxic, but we do not get harmed. So it's very difficult to design a molecule that is really good, right? Uh, and um, uh, we decided to work with super professionals. They gave us a target that is not novel, DDR1 kinase, which is implicated in fibrosis and many other diseases and cancer, and challenged us to design the molecules in very short period of time. So in 21 days, we used a technology called Generative Tensorial Reinforcement Learning System. It's a reinforcement learning generative system, which uses the variation autoencoder core as a base uh, and has many different models to evaluate the output of the generative system and then either reward or punish it based on the quality of the molecule. And uh, in that system called Gentrol, we've uh, generated six molecules very rapidly. And then we also, of course, need to prioritize synthetic accessibility to synthesize very quickly. So Wuxi synthesized them immediately, very, very quickly. Out of those six, four work in metabolic and microsomal stability assays, all showed amazing enzymatic activity. And um, again, they were synthetically accessible. And one went into mice. So to test into mice, all that took 46 days. Pretty wow. cool, right? So uh, usually it's using extremely traditional... fast. And I just want to interject and say for to just set the benchmark, like how long would this normally take? Oh, it's uh, it depends, right? You could possibly do something like that right very quickly when you already know the known molecules that ship the target. You can just optimize a little bit. So you can do it probably in six months. It's also operational efficiency, right? So you need to be in the race mode to do something like that in 46 days. And it has to be a known target with existing assays. Everything has to be prepared. As a matter of fact, for us, we decided to publish it in a high-profile journal and went into Nature by Technology. So it took longer to publish. It almost took us a year to publish. Then it took us to conduct the experiments. So basically what you saw in uh, 2019 in this Nature by Technology paper, it was a 2017 model so I tested in 2018, published in 2019. So that's why most of the scientists in our field choose to publish an archive. But I still like sometimes to go peer-reviewed, right? And we publish probably at the rate of about one, two, three research papers every month in wow. peer-reviewed journals or high-profile conferences. And uh, since then, we've demonstrated that we can now take those generative models and turn it into Chemistry Pretty 2, a large software package that allows you to generate molecules with the desired properties. And then we decided to release it to big pharmaceutical companies and it spread like wildfire. So because now AI scientists within the pharmaceutical companies would get access to our reward function. So, you know, a huge number of predictive models that evaluate the output of the generative models. And they could also benchmark uh, their models against, uh, you know, 40 models that we've developed. Uh, so companies that did not deploy Chemistry 32, they just don't know much about generative AI. They just, you know, they maybe publish something, but it's not exactly companies that use it to, to generate molecules. And they usually use physics-based modeling, traditional structure-based drug design using physics. And uh, no blatant self-promotion here, but I think it's fact. 
And it's probably like wildfire. Then out of top 20 started using it, getting access to the platform, but also started collaborating because some of them needed to see how it's done. And that's how we actually got into drug discovery. We thought if we have to walk everybody through this process, why don't we actually show everyone that now we can take a target that is difficult to drug, that is hot or moderately hot or novel and generate molecules and take them all the way into human clinical trials, validating the generation conditions that were, uh, that, that were specified for the generation of this molecule all the way into humans. So the problem with generated from drug discovery is that it takes you much longer to validate than it takes you to generate, right? So usually it's uh, the other way around when you do voice, text, uh, video, or images, right? So if you generate pictures, you can very quickly evaluate the quality as a human or text. But when you are doing generative for drug discovery, your molecule might pass all the filters. It will work in, you know, wet experiments uh, in the cells, in mice, and then will, you know, be toxic in humans. So that's very difficult uh, validation process, and it might take years. As a matter of fact, I think in generative AI, Pharma is a safe haven where you are protected against many technological changes, right? Because if you generated something using a 2018 model and it works, the molecule works, you validate it all the way into phase two complete, and now it becomes a billion-dollar molecule very often, right? So you've seen that uh, some molecules last year were licensed for like $6 billion by Big Pharma after phase two complete. So that's the ultimate prize, and it, it exceeds uh, every revenue stream that may come from software, and you also help a lot of patients, but it takes a long time. And I think generative AI investors nowadays, they actually don't realize that. They don't see the companies in our space, not only our companies, some few others, uh, especially those that are significantly earlier, but I think that in generative drug discovery is a safe haven and that is currently not really deeply explored by technology investors. So biotech investors, they know us very well. Pharma knows us very well, but technology investors usually do not understand this field and they leave it up to biotech professionals to, to support companies like ours, right? Because again, right. you need to make really large educated bets. I mean, you did your PhD in this field. So you know how difficult it is, and it requires a PhD usually to look at those molecules. And usually it's not one, it's many people from different backgrounds with a PhD and many years of experience. And yeah, so very happy to be here. Uh, we demonstrated the generative works all the way into phase one complete uh, in humans and nominated many preclinical candidates. So preclinical candidate, by the way, for those who are listening and are not familiar with this field, is one stage away from human clinical trials. So pharmaceutical drug discovery looks uh, like, you know, uh, a sliced uh, sausage. And every piece of a sausage is uh, a different field of validation. So first you need to discover a target. You need to identify promising protein that is driving the disease. That may take you one to five to 10 years. Usually academics do that. And the failure rate there is 95 to 99%. So most of the hypotheses that you come up with fail. And you usually validate using cell-based models. Uh, you do knockouts. So remove that gene from, let's say, a mouse and see if the mouse uh, exhibits a certain phenotype. 
Then another slice is uh, you do chemistry. So you generate uh, molecules that uh, hit the target quickly. So disable it or specifically activate it. And then uh, you improve those molecules. And those stages cost many millions of dollars, sometimes hundreds of millions of dollars, and fail much more often than they succeed. So there are six preclinical stages. Uh, so preclinical candidate is uh, one kind of slice away from humans. So you complete the long-term uh, GLP safety study. So good laboratory practices, safety study, there are certain standards how to do safety, and then you go to the regulatory body like the FDA, or in China, that would be CDE, which controls um, all the human clinical trials, and you ask if you can do human clinical trial. Uh, and if you get the permit, you go and do it, right? And usually for phase one is safety, phase two efficacy, phase three is safety and efficacy, and uh, those human clinical trials may take you uh, seven, eight years. Right. So usually phase one takes you about a year and a half. Phase two takes you about a year and a half to two years. Phase three may take you several years. Right. Uh, yeah. uh, usually it's three years. So preclinical candidate, usually by that time, you've demonstrated that your compound buys to the target. You demonstrated it works in at least two animal models, trying to mimic the disease. And you demonstrate that it's safe safe enough to go into a formal safety study. So we've nominated nine preclinical candidates last year. That's a pretty hardcore number. And all of those came out of generative. That's incredible. And thanks so much for sharing that history. It's great to see how generative AI has really been a core to your business, right? And almost part of Insilico's DNA since inception. So looking ahead, how do you think about generative AI technologies, right? And what are you thinking about in terms of regulatory and ethical considerations? So sure. Well, on the early stage uh, drug discovery, as I've explained, usually you have to validate experimentally anyway in order for the regulators to give you the green light to do something else. So from the regulatory perspective, in pharma, in drug discovery, we shouldn't change AAPAY. As a matter of fact, that system is already perfectly fine-tuned for whatever scenario, because people can have a eureka moment and come up with a great drug, then you still have to test it using many experimental assays in order to convince the regulator that it's safe and effective and uh, convince the investors that it's reasonably novel. So you won't be able to have dramatic impact on the regulators and on the investors and on the fellow scientists to give you green light without experiments. So their experiments rule and you don't need to think about it. Where you need to think about regulation of generative AI is when you release the software to, you, to consumers, right? And when you release the software to the researchers, you know, in academia or industry, usually it's also very well regulated using internal best practices. So they can design and develop poisons with traditional techniques, but for some strange reason, they just don't, right? So generative is not going to change much because access to your platform, usually people have to apply. It's only available to Big Pharma and they are not in the business of uh, making bad things happen to humanity. But once systems like ChatGPT and others get into the hands of consumers where regulation 
and access uh, is not there, people can self-medicate, for example, right? So they get so used to trusting the large language model output that if they have pain somewhere or they see the rash and describe the symptoms, they try to self-medicate. And as a matter of fact, those systems are pretty good, right? When giving you some diagnosis with uh, all the proper disclaimers, and uh, then they provide you with treatment recommendations, and that's the real danger of AI, right? So that kind of, in that area, I don't think that regulation will help much. We just need to ensure that those systems are perfect, right? And uh, they understand the consumer very quickly, and they either do not answer those questions, right, and refer to the right professional, so you actually need to solve the problem for the person, right, when they are asking a question. So you just cannot really avoid it, right? Because they will just go and ask somebody else, some other system, or they will try to hack your prompt or try to go around it. So you just need to build sophisticated models that either get away from the question, right? Or provide a really, really perfect answer. So that's where, for example, Google Matpalm is doing a very good job and they're training on the proper literature and improving the models, but it has to be even better. It has to become better. So there we shouldn't stop, right? So we should not say, okay, well, let's stop the development of large language models. Um, you know, the genie is out of the bottle. We just need to ensure that they are perfect and fine-tuned for very specific applications that I've described because that's where the real danger is. You can actually, it can result in, in significant harm to people. On the preclinical and clinical study levels now, I don't think you are going to experience any problems. We just need to ensure that the doctors do not over-rely on generative systems when filing the reports, for example, right? Because it's easy. It uh, saves you time. You get used to it. But sometimes those reports will be junk. And then other large language models will have to be trained on the same content that is AI generated, right? And you will have garbage in, garbage out, garbage in, garbage out all the time. Right. So you don't want to have that. And then I think in terms of the opportunities of generative rely in fully automated self-driving labs. So what we've done at Silico to prepare for this, we've built a massive giant robotics lab in Suzhou in China, where we've got six interconnected rooms where humans do not need to support the experiments, right? So uh, you worked for a company like that before. I think that was Stratios, right, yeah. or something yep. else. Yep. Yeah, so they were. Yeah, love the robotic cloud yeah. labs. <laughs> yeah, so they were one of the early pioneers in this, but it, A, wasn't fully automated. B, it wasn't AI-driven. Those were kind of the early days. And in our case, we, of course, learned the best practices from that company and the Broad Institute and many others and decided to focus on target discovery to automate the process of formulating the disease hypothesis picking the right target, and then validating this target very quickly. So I think in that area, you can actually get the feedback much faster than going with novel chemistry. And uh, we have a process where sample, either the human tissue sample or animal tissue sample or organoid or human cells or animal cells go in, robot picks them up, 
uh, grinds it, microplates it, does quality control, you know, evaluates that there is no mycoplasma, no fungus, uh, etc., and passes that sample to another room. In that room, we've developed autonomous guided vehicles that pick the sample up and take multiple routes. So we take one route to the incubator, put part of the sample there so that it safely grows or stays there for the time that it takes to conduct the data extraction from another part of the sample. Part of the sample goes into the imaging station, so you get multiple types of imaging. So part of the sample gets destroyed, but you get a lot of valuable imaging data. Then part of the sample goes into the NGS prep room, where robots automatically create multiple libraries for uh, onyx extraction acquisition. So those omics at the baseline is called genome sequencing, RNA-seq. So you measure gene expression, the entire transcriptome. You measure methylation. So we measure those methylation markers, small methyl groups that sit on DNA and regulate gene expression. And you get a few other data types. Then you give it to the sequencing machine. It produces those sequencing data types. Uh, next generation sequencing data types, and all that imaging plus omics goes into my AI. It makes decisions on which targets are important in that particular sample for a specific application automatically. So we reduce the experimental bias, but also you know, reduce and remove human bias because humans are very biased when making target choices. So an expert head of the therapeutic area will always know, you know, top 20 targets that they would like to go after or benchmark against and pathways. So we go away from that. We use more than 60 target discovery philosophies, prioritize the targets, pick the possible tool compounds for those targets where those tool compounds exist, automatically get them from the compound hotel, uncap them, put them on the liquid handler, prepare them for the transfer onto the samples from the incubator, and then incubate those samples from the incubator with those compounds at different concentrations for specified times, usually it's six hours, 24 hours, 48 hours, so that the sample absorbs the compound. And then we repeat the entire cycle. So we get many types of imaging, many times so omics, the data goes back into AI, and there AI gets either punished or rewarded for picking good or bad targets. And if it found some really interesting novel targets, uh, it demonstrate those targets to the scientists, and then human scientists go and prosecute those targets by doing knockout experiments, CRISPR experiments, and uh, single cell experiments. So basically, we'll push deeper to see if those targets are, are likely to work in that disease of interest, and also if they are commercially tractable, if they are normal, if they are druggable. Uh, so do 360 analysis using our tools, and uh, then we might go after the program or not. So you basically train AI, but at the same time, you discover targets. And my kind of big vision is to try to miniaturize that and uh, place those robotics labs into hospitals in countries that never even aspired to do drug discovery, right? Uh, actually, I'll just also tell you the story. Targets are um, disease hypothesis are usually formulated in very, very few places in the world, right? So we're talking about Boston, number one mega hub for scientific knowledge creation and disease hypothesis formulation and target discovery. Then we get uh, the UK, city of Basel, so Switzerland produces probably 20, 25% of those innovative therapeutics. Then you get France, 
Then you get Germany, then you get Tokyo, then you get uh, Japan. And then now China has joined the race. So you've got Shanghai, which is an epicenter. You've got Suzhou, you've got uh, Beijing. But many countries are extremely resource rich, but they just lack those capabilities. And in theory, if you put a robot with an AI on top of it, which is trained on the entire world in terms of how to discover targets and how to come up with those decision hypotheses, and this robot starts identifying the right drugs for the right patients, and at the same time starts doing target discovery, you can accelerate biomedical innovation globally quite dramatically. And I think this idea of democratization, right? This idea of democratization, I think, creates a lot of avenues for increased access to health and care. So I love that idea. Exactly. But I don't like the idea of cloud labs because it just won't work. At least I don't think so, right? Because I'm one of those biotechs uh, that is using a lot of contract research organizations. Will I be using a cloud lab that a lot of other people use? And also there are all kinds of data concerns, right? And data transfer internationally. So it's a good question whether this model will work or not. But if you put those labs in hospitals that do not need to transfer the data outside the hospital, so you actually bring this innovation as close to physicians as possible, I think there you have a much higher chance not to democratize the the access to those advances, but to dramatically enhance the number of sites that are producing valuable research uh, and give it to a completely different group of stakeholders that never aspired to do what Harvard and Hopkins labs try to do o- over centuries, right? Well, decades. And um, at the same time, solving a mundane problem for a physician, right? So I think that is a much better route. But yes, democratizing access to generative is through software. If you are to do robotics, then it probably need to go through hospitals. Yeah. All right. As we look to wrap up, I just want to end with two sort of fun questions. The first is there's typically a lot of entrepreneurs and founders that listen to the podcast. What is one piece of advice for someone that's listening? My piece of advice is that think about what you are doing in this life, right? We are very easily convinced to optimize our lives for some objective function that involves uh, some points, right? And most of the people's lives, it's a number of dollars or some other currency that you aggregate, real estate or children that you produce, or maybe there is some kind of reputation metric. For example, in research, it is the number of citations or H index. I think that the most important uh, objective function that you could consider is the number of quality adjusted life years that you create for the world, right? So how much life you are creating for yourself and for the others. And once you realize that it's also a metric and you can optimize for that objective function, you will find your optimal path in the world, right? So, you know, a good doctor may generate, let's say, 100,000 quality adjusted life years in their career, and they don't technically save lives, right? They marginally extend them. So if a a great surgeon during their entire life may generate uh, 300,000 life years, uh, if they're lucky. If you discover a drug that increases the life of uh, everyone on the planet by just one year, you generated 8 billion life years. 
and that's a really major prize, right? So you can give out a lot of uh, resources to fight poverty, to fight climate change, many other areas. So many of those problems will naturally disappear due to advances in technology. But in biotechnology, life cycles are much longer than in other areas of technology. So it's much easier to create a device that cleans the ocean at scale than to discover a, drug, a set of drugs or a therapeutics that extend the life of everybody on the planet by 10 years, right? It just uh, never happens, right, for one therapeutic. And whatever you are doing, you are going to be creating more value when you are in biotech than if you are just making computer games or providing other entertainment options to people at scale, right? So if you want to be impactful, go into biotech, join the fight, and uh, be wise here, right? Because it's very easy to lose everything very quickly. What I realized is that if you don't have a sustainable business model, regardless of how much money you raise, it's never going to be enough. Because again, the cost of one drug on average is two and a half billion dollars because of the many failures. So if you don't fail, you still going to cost you a hundred million bucks. If you want to have many shots on goal, you need to figure out how to be sustainable in this area. And my advice is that, you know, the most important biological process in your life is aging because you don't realize that until nature ensured that you don't think about it much but you're going to lose everything and die, right? And regardless of whether there is something afterward or if it's a video game or you're here just for entertainment purposes or somebody else's entertainment purposes, if you create more life for everybody, you're going to be much more impactful. And uh, aging is one process that drives all diseases, well, pretty much all diseases. And uh, even if you're talking about uh, infectious diseases, if you are younger, you are much more likely to survive and build the immune response. And the most important biological process that is not yet understood, we're just scratching the surface, is uh, aging. So if you're interested in that area, there is one great conference organized by the University of Copenhagen that transpires every year, five-day event that is actually for everybody, not only for scientists. And it's uh, August 28th to uh, September 1st in Copenhagen. I always go there as agingpharma.org, so join that. And yeah, find a way to fight aging, fight your need. And AI, if you want to be better at AI, you actually need to understand aging research because most of the processes happen in time and uh, most of the processes are affected by aging. So even if you are looking at material science and looking at how materials change in time, if you can predict the age of material using different properties, you can understand the basic physics behind uh, the, those changes over time. So I think that aging research is the most impactful field. Go and do some aging research. Wonderful. Thank you for that. That was very inspiring. So go to the aging conference, seek Alex out and uh, let us know how it goes. All right. Very last question. And use, this... use Amazon because yes. <laughs> yeah, we are all on Amazon cloud. Doesn't doesn't waste your time, right? So it's super convenient. These guys are great at delivering products but they are also great at delivering your compute. So we use a lot of Amazon compute. Wonderful. All right, very last question. This was a tough one because Alex, as you all know, there's just so many things that have been published with him. So I really wanted to find a question that no one asked, and I think I found one. So Alex, the number 42 comes up in some of your product <laughs> offerings. 
Can you explain what is there a significance to this number? So sure. I think a lot of people in our industry associate 42 with AI. So now AI, generative AI is such a term which uh, is so populist, everybody is using it. It's almost like a swear word. We decided to use the number 42 as kind of reference to AI. And it, it comes from uh, Douglas Adams' Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, uh, where the uh, race of superintelligent mice developed a supercomputer called Deep Thought that was that is a form of AI, and asked it the question, what is the answer to life, the universe, and everything? And it went uh, to think for and compute for, I don't know, I don't remember how long, but uh, I think it was centuries. And then the many descendants of those superintelligent mice came to the computer and told them the number 42. That's uh, a great story. <laughs> that is the story that comes from um, a fun uh, science fiction novel. And we decided to just use 42 for anything AI, right? Because it's not super interpretable very often, right? Our software is very interpretable. And sometimes um, you just need to ask the right questions. So if you are asking for the answer to life, the universe, and everything, you will get 42. So you just need to make sure that you set your input parameters correctly and the objective function. All right. Well, that's unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much, Alex, for joining us. You gave us lots to think about in terms of Gen AI and aging as well. Thank you again. Perfect. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for joining us today for the AWS Health Innovation Podcast. If you want to get in touch with AWS, please check out our show notes where you can find a link. If you enjoy the podcast, the best way to support us is to share it with your colleagues and friends. We also really appreciate your reviews and ratings wherever you listen to podcasts. We love hearing feedback from our listeners, so please don't hesitate to get in touch. Again, you'll find all the details in our show notes. See you next week.